Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creator producer Leo Garcia. Joined via Zoom by TV Awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're going to talk about some sad stuff. Some happy stuff. And what is comedy? Some existential yep. stuff. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Well, skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Ben, I thought of you immediately when this news hit the wire. Netflix's decision to cancel Glow, despite renewing it for a fourth season before pandemic, I think it had, it had already kind of started production because you talked to Betty Betty Gilpin for award spotlight. What, why, and will there be a TV movie? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, all great questions. I, I guess I'll start with with a little bit about the what. In that, um, yeah, they did. They had started production before uh, all production shut down. Um, the the last report I heard was that they had two and a half two and a half episodes in the can when things uh, went under. Um, obviously, they do you know ten episode seasons. So that's not it's like a quarter of the way there. Um, but who knows what they would have had to rework or rejig or rewrite or whatever it is uh, in order to you know get back into production under the new safety guidelines. And the, the reasoning for the cancellation uh, is very much COVID-centric. Like they, they were saying that part of it in the implied statement from the Netflix, unnamed Netflix spokesperson was that, uh, you know, because it's a wrestling show, because there's a big ensemble, because there's a lot of, you know, physical contact and intimacy and, and people all together in one space, that made it much harder to shoot right now than some of the other stuff that could get up and get going in production. Uh, I don't necessarily buy this. I think if it was a high priority title that they would have found a way to get this done because there's plenty of big ensemble things shooting and there's plenty of, you know, big deal shows that are shooting. And again, I, I don't necessarily think this there's is a great There's plenty of professional wrestling shooting. There's so. plenty of, of professional wrestling being done right now, which is an excellent point, Libby. One of the reasons, though, that uh, Mark Marin gave when he was kind of doing a, a debriefing on an Instagram Live, I believe Tuesday morning, uh, was that part of the problem was really that they would have had to um, continue paying rental fees for the housing of their sets as well as the office space that they've leased out for the show. Uh, and they would have had to continue doing that for the next six to seven months. Um, I don't know if that implied that they wouldn't start shooting for six or seven months or it would have taken them six or seven months to complete it. Uh, either way, I don't necessarily think that's a great reason for it. I think what this really boils down to is simply that Glow, over the past three years, despite getting immense critical praise, almost unanimous critical praise, the viewership, as far as we know, was never huge. It had a very strong, passionate fan base, but as we've seen in the past, that doesn't amount to much when it comes to Netflix if it's not bringing in new subscribers or... Um, keeping a large group of subscribers satisfied, then it's an expendable show, uh, more or less, in their eyes. 
Um, and because, you know, uh, whatever costs they would have incurred from trying to get this into production, whatever they could, weren't, wasn't as valuable as getting another show into production and using that space in a different way and having a new show come out and replace glow on the schedule, uh, that could be bigger, better, longer lasting, whatever it is. Um, it was, it seemed to me like it was just one of their kind of brutal calculations. Whereas in, in normal times, they would have been happy to have a final season and 10 more episodes to satisfy everybody, um, and it's not a hugely expensive show to produce as is, I think that would have been fine. But as soon as there was an additional burden on them, it was just no longer worth taking. And again, that's, um, that's really hard to swallow because uh, Glow is a show that I always felt could have gone for 10 seasons. Like it just seemed like it was built to run forever. And I think that uh, given kind of the story arcs in season three that the the showrunners probably knew that they didn't have that long and they they were you know looking forward to kind of uh, expediting the narrative and making sure that you know everybody's arc was as rich and full and and well-rounded as they could get um, but they still needed that fourth season to be put in place to really finish it off and and give some closure to uh, each of these wonderful individuals that we've gotten to know over three seasons uh, all that being said I love glow I think Glow is incredibly rewatchable and so satisfying on an episode-by-episode basis that even if you've watched it once and liked it, um, going back to rewatch it is going to be such a pleasure and a joy, and you're going to find new things that you love. And it does still end in season three in a way that is good. Like it's a good, it's a good ending because it's a good ending to the season. So like it's not a great series finale, but it definitely works in a way where you can envision where these people would go and how they would end up. Ruth maybe a little less than than other people, but she's still doing the thing that you would hope she would do. Um, so lastly, I guess to round back to your original questions, is there going to be a TV movie? I have no idea. I think that's going to be so long in the future that that could even happen. That I kind of doubt it i think it would have to take some sort of weird cultural resurgence around glow for netflix to feel like they even needed it or wanted to bother you know spending the money to get everybody back together and considering you know how well betty gilpin is doing you know as a leading lady at this point you know who knows if she'll be available or who what other members of the cast will be available so um i think this is probably goodbye but uh I love that show. So anytime we always have a wet, hot American summer, 10 years later style glow reunion. I sure. And then that way they don't, they don't have to pay for the sets, get rid of the sets now. And then you, you set it in the future and they're, they're new sets. Yeah. Uh, Libby, I wanted to throw to you just because I know this is something we talked about a little bit. I don't know how often we've talked about it on pod, but you've definitely mentioned that glow was pretty consistently hampered at the awards due to uh, it's the, when it would drop. And right, like right. it obviously built Betty Gilpin got a nomination, an Emmy nomination for uh, all three seasons. Um, and it did get an outstanding comedy series for its first season. And it, it, usually, it did well, like in stunt uh, coordination with Shauna Duggins. But what about the way that it was released? If it had been an awards, perennial awards contender, would that have maybe saved it? And they would have been like, we'll we'll spend the money on these six, seven months to bring it back for yeah. a final season. I mean, if we're playing hypothetical games, then yeah, because... Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. I think seasons one and two were kind of okay with the Emmy calendar. It wasn't ideal. But then season three missed by a few months and then things were really fucked. And and basically everyone forgot about it. Um, 
so it was it was definitely one that felt like like what happened with Shit's Creek. You were always hoping that was going to happen with Glow, that it would hang in there long enough that in a soft season it would break through. It's what we've thought hoped for the good place. It's what we it's we we hope for those kind of shows that are very critically acclaimed that um you're always hoping is going to find a wider audience. Um Glow was apparently always a little bit of a hard sell because it was a very unexpected workplace comedy. And and a large portion of why I think Ben thinks that it could have run for 10 seasons. I mean, because workplace comedies do. Uh, like, Cheers and The Office. This was the DNA of, of, of Glow. It was just a very unorthodox workplace. Um, it's It's... It's very disheartening to me that this happened because I was legitimately thinking about writing about Glow this week for no other reason that, you know, Ben and I both love it. And um, I, I constantly want pe- more people to watch it. So, you know, it, it gets the acclaim it deserves. But yeah, I think if it had gotten more consistent and growing love from the Academy, that, that, that it would have had at least bigger exposure to a wider audience and and would have resulted in at least more people sampling it and realizing it, it was maybe not what they expected it to be. Um, but right now you're dealing with a system where women are, 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 are regularly sidelined and shows about women um, are still kind of uh, pushed aside. Uh, shows about professional wrestling are, are are pushed aside. There is a very there's a cottage industry of of, of making fun of um, professional wrestling, which I understand, but it is a soap opera, uh, a, like a physical soap opera. It's all performance. Um, it was just this sweet, amazing show that understood women's relationships with each other. Um, that just never, never, never never found its home. Um, and to uh, to speak a little bit, like just very quickly to the kind of shows, as you mentioned, that are getting canceled after being renewed. Um, I think it was IndieWire contributor Gene Bentley who flagged this the other day, right after Glow got canceled. But we've got Glow, we've got The Society, I Am Not Okay With This, True TVs, I'm Sorry, um, The Evil Knievel thing on USA Network and ABC's Stumptown, um, five of those six, five of those six shows are all women-led shows. Like they're all evil Knievel. So <laughs> evil Knievel, especially. So um, it's just uh... well, women don't watch television, so that I think that's probably why. And men can't empathize with women. All of this is true. Uh... <laughs> well, from from our glow eulogy to something that brought Ben immense amounts of joy, apparently oh, over the weekend. Yes. Uh, I, I only know I only know this through your social media, Ben. But this weekend, uh, the third day had a twelve-hour live episode. Yes. How does that work? And what was the craziest <laughs> part of it? And what's oh. the third day? All right, great questions. All of these again, everybody just chipping in with great questions right now. Uh, the third day is HBO's limited series starring Jude Law. Um, it's, uh, kind of a, an island mystery series. What did you say, Louis? The Pope. It's a pseudo sequel to the young Pope and a prequel to the new Pope. It's right in between. Um, but no, it's, it's, um, it's somewhat, or it's trying to be somewhat unique in its construction and execution. 
in that the first three episodes are uh, kind of joined together and they're called Summer. And they follow Jude Law's character who arrives at the island and uh, gets kind of caught up in the, the, uh, the cultural mysteries uh, there within. Um, and then the second set of episodes, there's six total episodes, the second set is called Winter. And it follows uh, a new character and has a new director and it looks different. It's, it's focused differently and, and you can't quite figure out how it connects right away. Um, and uh, Naomi Harris is, is the star of that one. Uh, and then right in between is Autumn. And Autumn is the live event slash live episode that they put on this past Saturday. Uh, they did it on the island of OC, which is where the, the story is set, the show is set, which is just off the, the eastern coast of, of uh, Great Britain. And um, originally, what this was supposed to be was they were supposed to have up to 10,000 people showing up to the island to participate in this fall festival that they've been talking about in the show for the first three episodes. So like a lot of the reason that um, everybody else is there besides Jude Law is to attend this festival that the island puts on, which has, you know, like bands and um, bonfires and drinking and just, you know, like a lot of people having a lot of fun. Um, so they were going to throw that for a bunch of guests who could then come and participate uh, and try to figure out clues and, and solve extra mysteries and do all of this kind of live theater type stuff. Uh, it's a very similar, or it would have been a very similar exhibition to what Westworld did at South by Southwest a few years ago, where you could go to the town of Westworld and kind of go shop to shop and talk with these different actors and um, get different props and, and you know find out new mysteries of the world. Anyway, obviously with, with everything going on, they had to shut that down and come up with a new way to put on this episode. And their solution was to try to turn this into what they're calling a slow cinema event in which you watch more or less one person for 12 hours. There's a, a camera that just kind of wanders through the island to track different events across this day of festivals. And they, they, the tweak that they made so that it wasn't weird that there weren't more people there, that it wasn't this giant festival, was that they said the, the island shut itself down and just had an insular festival. So like part of their cultural, like sometimes it's, it's, it's that they invite everybody in. Sometimes it's like, no, 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 this is a private event. We're just going to celebrate our community. And that's what they did. Um, so anyway, the, the exciting part of this live episode <laughs> to me, and I talked about this with like the cast and crew, so I, have, I had far too much information about it going in, and yet I still was completely blindsided by what I got to see. Um, again, this was, this was done live while in Great Britain. So our time, Los Angeles time, it started at 1.30 in the morning and went until 1.30 p.m. Um, I woke up at like 9 or 10 and I tuned in and it was basically, it looked very much like a, kind of a wedding almost where like there was just these tables in front of this big building in the background and people were eating and talking and there was a, um, there was a table in the middle of, of like a, 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 a the U-shaped tables where like a, a man was sitting who was wearing like a bag and the bag had nails in it and he was pulling nails out of the bag and putting them into these pieces of paper that were then put in this bin that looks like the bingo bin, the thing that like you roll the balls and then you pull one out and like it's a whatever. And like you could read the, the things that were on the notes before he stabbed them and put them in and it was basically like people's wishes for the next year. So then you'd find out what happened. 
Um, so anyway, I watched that for maybe an hour, and then I was like, okay, this is this is interesting, but I, I have other things I have to do on Saturday. Um, and I came back for the end, and at the end, it's it was just Jude Law walking in front of these people carrying torches and jude was like really happy and he was like hugging people and he was laughing and you could tell he'd kind of been through the ringer because his beard was long and he had like stuff all over his face and he looked kind of muddy and i was like wow what i wonder what happened so as soon as it ended they posted the whole video and i went back to the beginning and if i would have gotten up at 1 30 in the morning and what i ended up watching later that day uh was the episode starts with Jude Law asleep and you watch him sleeping in bed for a while and then he gets rousted out of bed. They There's like a whole horde of people from the community on the island. They uh, give him this rope that he wraps around his shoulder and then he tugs a boat like all the way across this island down to the sh- like the, to the shore where the, where the ocean is. Um, as he gets as soon as he gets to the beach, they put this weird like crown of thorns over his head. It's like a blend of crown of thorns and the bee bonnet that Nicolas Cage wears in the Wicker Man. It's like, it's kind of open at the top, it's got, but it's got like spikes around it, but it's still like coming up all around him. And he just looks miserable. And at this point when they're putting that on, they also strip him down to like his boxers. So he's just wearing like, like, like these blue skivvies. He goes and like has this weird ceremony with another person where like another person shows up with uh like the same kind of thorn thing on um it's insane they get they 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 got into the water and as they get into the water uh they're like standing there they both get into the boat they row out into the middle of the ocean and in the middle of the ocean there's these two platforms and as my mother uh described to me later this was just like survivor when they stand on a platform <laughs> and the platform like slow and survivor like slowly lo- like yeah. gets skinnier until they can't stand on it anymore and the last one standing wins but these guys were just standing out there and it was like, what are you, are you just going to leave them out there? Like what's, what's going to happen? And after like 10 minutes of them just standing on these platforms in the middle of the ocean, one of them jumps off and just falls into the water. And then Jude Law jumps off and just falls into the water. And then the camera just pans back to the island and they start their celebration and you're like, what the fuck happened to Jude? And then for the rest of the thing, they kind of just cut back to Jude, like staring up into the sky every once in a while where he's like, he doesn't look well. Like he looks all muddy and kind of confused. Um, and then he shows back up at the end for like the final ceremony where, well, something significant happens uh, and related to, to the show uh, that I won't spoil here in case anybody's actually watching. Um, but it, it was just wild. It was just, it was so much more than I thought it was going to be, which honestly, great. <laughs> Good. How many, I, how many hours of the 12 did you watch? Would you say? Oh man, I'd say maybe two, uh, two and a half tops because I kind of just like, once I could see what they were doing, I'd fast forward a bit to be like, okay, so he's walking. Okay. He's walking. Okay. He's still walking. Like, and just check in for like the, the dramatic changes. Um, but there were people and like, so they aired this on Facebook, on their Facebook page, on HBO's Facebook page. So there was a comment section just going the whole time and people were talking to each other where they were like referencing little clues and putting things together and talking about how it built into the show and predicting what would happen next and saying like hi to everybody who was on set because they couldn't see it. Um, but it was like, you could tell like there were a lot of people who were really, really engaged with it. And this was put on by, um, uh, the company punch drunk, which did, um a bunch of live events i'm blanking on the name of one of their more famous exhibitions that was in new york sleep no more they did sleep oh no yeah more. i was gonna and say they, it sounds like sleep no more yeah they did that um sleep no so more like is they've got very good own, 
Yeah, and they've got their own built-in fan base full of people who, you know, kind of came out for this as well. But um, anyway, it was a wild fucking thing. And <laughs> I'm really glad I got to see what, like, what parts of it I did. Uh, and yet at the same time, as somebody who's watched five of the six episodes of just the show, you are able to watch just the show and you don't have to tune into the 12-hour thing. But if you did, I think you kind of got what you came for. Like, it was worth it and for jude law to go through all this by the way way to go dude you're having a great year between the new pope and the third day and the nest and now this live event like give that man some kind of award uh guys we were talking before the podcast about snl's premiere this weekend and sort of their role in the political conversation as it were I was mostly shocked at the length of the cold open, 13 minutes long before you get to a very disjointed live from New York. It's Saturday night. Um, Ben, you watched live and Libby, I know you have thoughts on this as well, but what is the role of S? What should the role of SNL be in an election season? And are we putting, pinning too much, too much on their shoulders? If these are the right questions to ask. I'll preface this by saying that um, SNL right now, uh, a month before a presidential election, uh, is going to face much more scrutiny than it already does as our kind of preeminent sketch show and one of our preeminent live experiences, even though a lot of people watch it you know, the next day on YouTube and whatnot, um, in part because... It is something that people circle around and it is a cultural institution and it's been here for so long in part because of how many times they've fucked up in the past in uh, inviting certain people onto the show, humanizing certain people, or generally just being unable to have any sort of uh, commentary about the things that they're supposed to have commentary about. Um, And I think to me, that was kind of the striking element of it. We've talked about for years now that one of the more annoying and uh, exhausting aspects of modern SNL is that they they do more recaps than sketches, especially when they're doing their live openings, especially when they're trying to talk about anything that happened in the previous week. Um, they just recreate it. They kind of say the things that people talked about the most so that people can hear it again via an impression, and that is entertaining because of celebrities, I guess. Um, and to be fair, when they started their, their live opening, which was the debate uh, reenactment, the presidential debate reenactment, they said this was a rebroadcast. Like there was a, a thing scrolling at the beginning that says, this is a rebroadcast of the thing you've already seen. And it's like, okay, I guess in that context, you did do that. You did kind of tweak it just enough to make it seem both like a reminder of what we already saw and a slightly exaggerated version, I guess, though it lost all of the chaos and all of the like kind of live spontaneity that the debate actually thrived on. Um, and when I say thrived, I mean, you know, cratered and died and became a horrific mess of a train wreck that you couldn't look away from. Um, but to me, the, the biggest problem, and I'll leave it at this, is that their introduction of Joe Biden especially as an opposition to President Trump, uh, was bad. And their reintroduction of Kamala Harris was worse. And I'll frame that as, as saying their take on Donald Trump 
for the last four years is basically he's an idiot and they don't have anything more to say about it. They are very happy with just kind of recreating the words in which he paints himself a fool and they don't want to go beyond that. Um, Alec Baldwin honestly will say much worse and much more harmful things in the interviews about what he's doing than the show is willing to go, like than the, the, the depth of evisceration the show is willing to go. But with Joe Biden, Jim Carrey comes out. Um, I know Libby has thoughts on this too, so I'm going to leave, leave a lot of it for, for you. Uh, but he kind of trots out and it's, it's just, he's like a character. He's like, he's just an angry old man. And like, they're, they're trying to play off of the frustration that he felt when debating Trump and that Trump kept interrupting him, but it felt more like he was, he was a Clint Eastwood, like Jim Carrey doing a Clint Eastwood version of Joe Biden than Jim Carrey doing a Joe Biden. Like it didn't remind you of Joe Biden. And it's because they didn't care enough to actually dig into who Joe Biden is and build off of any of those traits. They were just like, well, Joe Biden kind of reminds me of this. So then that character can kind of remind us of that. So then we can just paint this very broad characterization that everybody will recognize, even though they don't recognize Joe Biden. And I think to clarify that even further, their introduction of Kamala Harris was worse because when they introduced Kamala Harris, it was that she walked in as the mom figure to settle down these two arguing boys. And there has never been a thought in my life when I was like, Kamala Harris reminds me of a mom. And the only reason that they did that was because they can't think of a woman leader in any other context because they're just these silly little boys writing SNL. And that infuriated me to no ends. That was the thing that was kind of the final straw where I was just like, they don't even have the energy to try to, you know, create a, a character or to create a parody of a real person. They're just parodying ideas that the people remind them of, which aren't even entirely accurate. Um, so that, that was my, that was my biggest takeaway. I'm sure there's much more dangerous and, 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 and more specific and better explained problems, but that was my biggest frustration when I watched the cold open. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I hadn't thought of like that Clint Eastwood element. Um, when, he, when, uh, Carrie first came out as Biden, I was like, oh, well, they're going to go with the onions, Joe Biden, which isn't the worst thing in the world. It's, it's, it's weird now and it doesn't work as well, but at least it's, it's something, it's a way to go, yeah. which was, uh, the old, what did he have? Like an old Trans Am and Diamond buy Joe. high schoolers beer yeah. and Diamond Joe. Diamond Joe. Diamond and he's, Joe. he's, uh, he's washing the old Trans Am in the, in the White House, <laughs> yeah. uh, parking lot. It's just like. Yeah, this this like kooky uncle who's a little rude, uh, loves eighties you know metal hair, hair metal, metal. Yeah, uh, loves some docking. Uh, he'll get high behind the White House. You know, like the, the the weird uncle as as VP. But yeah, they 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 it seemed like they were going that direction, and then they did not. Yeah, then they they just uh, they just took a, a a right hard right turn to crotch the old man, and I understand the temptation of being like. Oh, we're so so tired of Trump. But like even even Biden's performance of that at the debate was kind of felt kind of false. Like he knew he had to hit that point because it would be relatable. Like, oh, this is so hard. I would have there's part of me that would have rather seen him fight back a little more and getting a little angry. But Regardless, that's debate criticism, not SNL criticism. SNL criticism is again. I'll 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 
couch this in, they're in an impossible situation because it's very difficult to make fun of Donald Trump uh, because nothing is more ridiculous than Donald Trump. Um, so then you'll have things like Alec Baldwin's impression actually seeming like a very toned down version of the actual person, which might work if like if they really leaned into that and like and 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 Baldwin was doing like a heavily medicated Trump, like that might actually be interesting. But it but it what it's doing now is because it's so different from the energy and the electricity of complete chaos that the debate had now this comedy show reimagination of it is very bland and is like oh this this is somehow less intriguing than than the actual debate was so that was a disaster and and i think that snl has gotten especially over the last four years well more than that obviously um has gotten caught in that media trap of like both sides like, we got to make fun of both sides equally. Uh, one side is equally as ridiculous as the other side. And, like, if you want to make fun of Democrats for being total... Pushovers. Yes, that was the P word I couldn't think of. Um, <laughs> if they're being total pushovers, uh, yeah, there is a lot to lampoon there. Like, the fact that Trump always does all of these egregious things and the Democrats kind of wring their hand, hands and hope the voters bail them out, um, that's, I would love to see that completely savaged on SNL, showing them as kind of cowering, simpering people, because they are. Yep. Um, but then you have to... You, you you have to excoriate the right in the same way, in that way that they deserve. If you want to play both sides, fucking go for it. Go for the jugular. But this whole, like, it's like SNL wants to be moderate comedy. It's like when Fox News tried to have their own, like, comedy line, like, like comedy. They still do. News show. Yeah. Like, it's Greg Gutfeld is still on Fox News. It's wrong. And it, I, I don't like it, and it doesn't make any sense, and that's moderate SNL to me. It's just unnecessary and kind of insulting to the American people and to late-night news shows or late-night uh, talk shows who are really doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this commentary stuff. Speaking from my slight experience at, Come on. at a satirical brand, I will say that... I'm the expert... <laughs> Uh, author, uh, critic act. of That's the Comedy Store. Uh, yes, uh, critic, well-renowned critic of the Comedy Store. Comedy critic and professional comic Leo Garcia. I don't know. I'll figure out a better intro. Here, here's what I'll say: uh, The Onion's take on Trump, at least early on, was because you could not. It, you're in the unenviable position of trying to out-Trump Trump. So in 2016, after he won, the thrust became: Let's paint Trump as he is not at all. And so you'd get headlines like, why can't I ever say the right thing? Weeps Trump into pillow. Like like the idea, like this is, he's really like torn up inside about the way the world views him, which is not at all true, but like that's the angle. Or like Melania Trump stumbles upon macabre self-portraits of Trump in White House basement. The idea that like he is a tortured soul, uh, that, that he, he feels all the well, evil that- Misunderstood. You, you know. Um, and I think we were talking about this earlier, Libby. I think the problem with SNL is that because they can't out-Trump Trump and Baldwin is essentially trying his best, it comes off as like a less 
comedic version of actual Trump. And then when you're excoriating Joe Biden as being angry, dumb, or forgetful, you're doing a disservice to the actual the actual world these people live in, where you're making it seem as if they're on equal footing yeah. when they're not. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Honestly, I wonder if part of the way you fix the Trump-Biden debate sketches, as they, I assume, are going to continue uh, through the next couple weeks, is you don't script Baldwin. Yeah. You have him do a couple points, and then you're like, do whatever the fuck you want. I mean, I think Carrie could roll with that, and it would at least give it the energy um, that the debates have. I I don't know. Like, it's... They have to do something else, because scripted is stilted and unfunny. I think it would have at least given a, it would have been a more interesting failure. Um, if if they took a big swing and they whiffed, I would have been like, well, they were trying something. I don't know. I don't know how anyone would accurately ape what we saw on television. Yeah. Um, I think, I think but- you have to go, and I think this is why some of our favorite comedies of the past several years are those that go super absurdist. I want to see Clickhole's debate. I don't need SNL's version of that debate um, because I watched the debate. And to Ben's point about recaps. And here's a, here, not to get too broad, but we were talking about this before the pod as well. Is comedy in this, comedy overall in a bad way right now in our current cultural climate? We, Leo, you're the one best equipped to answer that question. So one of us probably should have asked. <laughs> Back to Leo Garcia, our well, comedy expert who well, wrote the Comedy well, Store Review. Yeah, uh, uh, ben keeps referencing this Comedy Store Review that I wrote last week. And uh, I gave it a C. It was great. I gave it a C. I think, it, I think the Comedy Store is definitely a place where a lot of great comedians came through. And I think there's an interesting doc to be made about it. The, the Comedy Store on Showtime is not that doc for several reasons. But within... The doc itself, or within the review itself, I did bring up uh, that representation uh, is pretty paltry throughout in terms of the talking heads. And I caveated that by saying, of course, any documentary about the entertainment industry over the last 40 years is going to skew white and male. I just just wanted to let people know what they were getting to before they started watching it. The comments (laughs) uh, do do not skew that way, uh, saying everything is wrong and that I'm a racist for sort of uh, discounting white voices. Never read the comments. I, I also mentioned that uh, Louis C.K. shows up in the doc without any any sort of fanfare. Here he is, a man talking about the comedy store, uh, not the guy who was just ostracized from the comedy community several years ago for locking women in his hotel rooms and masturbating in front of them, which... He asked. Which he would ask. If he could. He would masturbate. ask. And not about the locking the yeah. door, but. Uh, one of the very astute commenters who hates my review did did say <laughs> that Louis C.K. did not masturbate on the Comedy Store stage, and to that I say kudos. You're right. He did not masturbate on the Comedy Store stage, so he can you know be what? in the dock. He can be in the dock. Neither did Trump. Neither did Trump. So I mean, I mean. Yeah. Points all around. Points all around. Good work. But my point being, my more general point being is watching all these old comedians, especially those that were sort of anti-establishment, there is none of that in the current cultural, uh, in the current cultural climate of comedy. I think some of it has to do with the fact, it's an industry-wide problem, that there was this boom of comedians in the 80s, 90s that have 
you know, they are now in their 50s, 60s. They've made their money in, in comedy. Uh, and they are establishment. And it's very difficult to have a George Carlin when your entire comedic community is made up of boomers who make money doing this thing. They can't fight against the thing that makes them money. And I think there's a separate issue that like young comics have either been sort of pushed aside because they're all, there is, there is this large crop of old comedians, you know, sort of uh, tre- like stopping up the funnel of comedy. But, but comedy clubs are struggling to survive. The entertainment industry has changed the way it incentivizes comedians. You have front-facing comedians on Twitter. That's like, that is where you find comedians now. People aren't doing stand-up. So people are doing characters. They're not really doing stand-up anymore. So you're not going to have someone who's going to eviscerate the capitalist system in which we live because there's no monetary reason to. And in the same fashion, you know, when Chris Rock's monologue, opening monologue for, for SNL, goes off on this weird kind of tangent about how he wished that, uh, you know, like everything's bad. Uh, COVID's been terrible. Like people are dying. But, you know, also I, I, I can't make plans anymore. And that really sucks for me. And I, I really hate that that happened. And, um, uh, you know, relationships are so weird now because of COVID. It's like, you know, you're in, in the relationships. Ugh, you're also stuck in the bubble. And uh, what are you going to do? Like when he, when he makes those kind of statements and then he follows them up by trying to get into topical, like, like more edgy, quote unquote, territory. And he says something like, you know, we should just get rid of the whole government. Like the whole system screwed. We got to get rid of the whole thing. Everybody is the problem. Uh, it, it just doesn't work. Like you can tell that it, that they're so disconnected from what everybody else is really feeling and really saying that there's no edge to it. There's no sharpness to it, but he's Chris rock and we're going to listen. He's on SNL and we're going to listen. We're going to watch those clips. We're going to talk about it. So it's just an endless cycle of the same problem. Like the celebrity combined with the nostalgia to me is what continues to feed this cycle where it makes it harder for a lot of the up and comers to, to, breakthrough and like i don't ever want to say that comedy is in trouble because i mean as long as i think you should leave from tim robinson exists and they keep bringing back episodes and that guy is out there doing his thing then i'm gonna have lots of things that i love and respect and laugh at uh and i know they're out there it's just like you said it's almost like it's harder to find and it shouldn't be this hard to find and it should we shouldn't be rewarding the things that have, are have former point. SNL alums Tim Robinson and Michael Patrick O'Brien write the debate sketch. You will get an amazing debate sketch. It's nothing that Lauren would ever greenlight, but like you get an amazing debate sketch. Um, one last point, like I, I think, because yeah. I, I didn't mention this earlier, but like when talking about the establishment, anti-establishment, and sort of the Carlin of it all, there is there are still comics who are quote unquote dangerous. But the things that they are railing against are not the things they should. They're all worried about PC culture and uh, being censored and not being able to tell the rape joke they want to tell. And it's like, that's not, you're focusing, you're, you're focusing your energy in the wrong place. And I'm not saying you're not funny. I'm not saying you're not smart and intelligent. I think you can, there are a bunch of comedians out there who, who do this and I don't have to name them. We all can think of them at the top of our heads. They should be focusing on power, literally. The reason that shows like SNL currently don't work is because they are so mild. They do not aim to destabilize the power structures that exist. You're supposed to poke fun at those in power. 
And but if you're all in power, yeah, and that that's that's literally the basis of satire, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Like you need to. That's that's the basis for all. That's why that's why Fox comedy doesn't work, because Fox comedy punches down at the poor, at the at those that ha- that the underprivileged. Like that's literally the, their base is rich white men. So it's like, who do you make fun of? People who aren't rich white men. The disenfranchised. Like yeah, great comedy. I'd like to mock people who are collecting welfare to feed their families. Like that's literally the problem. You need to be able to call truth to power and there no one is doing that really i i keep thinking of uh back in the old days and by that i mean this past winter when i was at the dga awards and judd apatow hosted judd apatow says a lot of very good things on twitter he's he really uh is is liberal and and wants to take it to the man and he talked about how uh how popular parasite was and how there seemed to be some anger towards the rich in the environment and how he was concerned because his house was bigger than the parasite house. And I was just like, oh, buddy, it's lucky you're in this room because this is maybe the only room in Hollywood where, you know, that that's your audience. Like, that's why you can't go on. That's why you don't do well in clubs because they're not your audience. Like, you need to host exclusive hundred thousand dollar plate events and 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 do that but the thing is so we saw that shift in the in the 90s 80s 90s to like observational humor um they don't want to move past observational humor and observational humor from white people in power who are middle class and up that's not interesting like we have seen every one of those observations so Give me a, a, a people of color. Give me women. Give me uh, people with varying gender identities. I don't know what all of their observations are. Like that's that's insightful humor. That's that's where we can we can draw interesting things from. It, it, it's the same thing that can be said about um, TV pickups. You, you know, I want more diverse voices because I'm just so tired of the same six voices. Uh, telling me what they think about the world. Comedy's bad and broken and it's probably dead and probably no one's ever gonna laugh again. <laughs> Comedy should be incisive and it should it should make you think and laugh, not just mm-hmm. laugh. I would, I would settle for jokes at this point. I mean, so much of That's SNL is, is jokeless. So I would settle for jokes if they're good. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else we wanna to touch on? Sorry, I get... I get heated about this stuff just because, like, it's in my I it's in my DNA. I love that. It's like, I I like literally when we were talking when uh, Anne was interviewing Taika Waititi. It's like people giving you shit about Jojo Rabbit, people being worried that you can't joke about the Nazis. It's like you can joke about fucking everything as long as the target is right. Like you can make a KKK comedy, provided the jokes are at their expense. The target has to be correct, and you can joke about anything. But it's when people misuse that that structure and are like, "Oh, I'm gonna do X, Y, Z." It's like, "Oh, you're not doing it right, Shane Gillis." 
Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork Talking About TV, and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brights, and our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue. Our favorite versions of Jude Law are Sleeping Jude Law, Crown of Thorns Jude Law, and 20-Foot Dive into the Ocean Jude Law. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses The Young Pope Jude Law. I'm fine with those. I'm also well, fine with... Napkin, was it Napkin Head? Napkin Jude Law. Head. I mean, can I can I shout out talented Mr. Ripley Jude Law? Like, yeah. I feel like too often overlooked. These Straight days. up gorgeous Jude Law is definitely talented Mr. Ripley Jude Law is insane. Uh, Gattaca, I, I, Gattaca Jude Law? No love for Gattaca Jude Law? Captain uh, Captain Sky. Uh, Captain Fantaculous and the Sky Pirates? Yes. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. <laughs> Right, that's what I did. Did I do it right? I did it right. Yeah. I said it right. Yeah. Uh, also, the holiday is a terrible movie, so. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire at Ben T. Travers and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. And also, leave a review on my Comedy Store review because I want to know what you think about white yeah. comedians. Nice. <laughs>